welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Continue in our exposition of the Gospel of Luke, and now come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let us hear the Word of God together. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's holy, mysterious, and victorious word. May we see our Lord Jesus today in his greatness. Amen. Amen and amen. You can be seated. What would you say is the greatest spiritual battle of all time as recorded in the Bible? The greatest spiritual battle of all time that the Scripture records. There are a lot of conflicts with a lot of consequences. Maybe you would say Satan's rebellion eons ago and shrouded in a lot of mystery as he rebelled against the holiness of God and the very holy place of God. No, that wouldn't be the greatest because... That was not much of a conflict. It was a decision by the devil. And it was swiftly handled by God, wasn't it? And besides, it takes no courage simply to commit evil. Well, what about Adam's temptation? Certainly much was at stake there. Was that the greatest spiritual battle in the Scriptures? No, it really wasn't much of a battle. If you remember the story, it was akin to a collapse. Well, certainly, if you go forward into the times yet to come, and as the Bible in Revelation 12 and onward records the great supernatural battle that's going to take place in the future between the devil and Michael, the archangel, and the demons of hell and the the angels of heaven that's going to take place behind the scenes as judgment unfolds on the planet and great spiritual battle takes place on earth. Isn't that the greatest spiritual battle the scripture records? I would say no, because the outcome of that was also certain and quick in coming. Well, then certainly you must think, well, certainly the greatest spiritual battle of all time as recorded in the Bible would have been the battle that Jesus underwent on on the cross itself as the darkness of God's wrath came and Jesus cried out at the height of it, Father, Father, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. Actually, he didn't call him Father at that point because of the alienation and the wrath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Certainly that would be the epic point of spiritual battle in the Bible. And I would say that last may be the closest. But there may have been a deeper moment than that. You, can, you, you would say, how in the world can, can a deeper moment of spiritual conflict than drinking the very cup of the wrath of God on the cross exist? But through my study this week, I believe I've found it. 
And it was the great battle in Gethsemane over the taking of that cup. Frederick Godet is a commentator from the past whom I've read since my days in seminary. Uh, deep calls to deep when you read Godet. And he brought something interesting up in his commentary about this passage. He said, quote, at Gethsemane, Jesus did not drink the cup, but he consented to drink it. The real battle was fought there. That struck me. And the more I went into the depths of the spiritual battle that we're going to gaze into today, the more I believe Dr. Godet was right. In a, in, a, in a sense, the taking of the cup of the wrath of God, as eternally horrible as it was in the dark hours on the cross, was immense. But there was a battle that took place in Gethsemane over the decision to take it, the, the consenting to take it, that may have been deeper still out. I'll leave that to you as to whether you agree. But even if you don't, we're going to explore a holy place in the Bible today. I think we're going to see something that many Bible commentators believe was the most focused attack by the devil and his angels upon any being in history. The attack of the devil in the final hour to keep Christ from that cross and to torment him and turn him away from the will of the Father. First time in eternal history. This was a, uh, an attack that was not only the most focused attack by the devil versus both on the natures of Christ, his nature is the perfect man, but his nature is eternal God. Both were assaulted by the devil in this text. But there was also the most in the balance of all the struggles that I've relayed to you. Redemption, eternal rescue was in the balance here, and it would move forward that night because of how Christ responded. And again, this is a most holy place. It's, it's a place where we ought to tread with reverence. J.C. Ryle, another writer of the past whom I've enjoyed and so many others that are expositors do, in his commentary, said this. The verses before us contain St. Luke's account of our Lord's agony in the garden. It is a passage of Scripture which we should always approach with peculiar reverence. The history which it records is one of the deep things of God. While we read it, the words of Exodus and God to Moses should come across our minds. Put off thy shoes from thy feet. The place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And this is a holy place in the holy book. And so as I've labored in it this week, I've been stunned by what I've discovered and humbled by what I've seen. And, and I, I, uh, I struggle to teach it to you. How do you teach majesty? And I've said that more than once from this platform it's a passage that we cannot fully relate to because it was, it was a scene that only Jesus himself as the God-man could have gone through. There's nothing for us to really apply to our lives from this passage because we couldn't have been there. This is, this is unique to him. We can't relate. But we can only gaze into it. And so that's what I want to do this morning in preparation for communion to follow. I simply want to take a gaze into Gethsemane. And I want to just observe some of the marvels that seem to come out of the passage. That's all I'm going to do. So walk with me there. It's as if we're, we're gazing from a place near him in the garden. Closer than the disciples were allowed to be. Now we have the Holy Spirit's rendering of it, the one who was there. What marvelous things do we see about Jesus? Let's just walk through the passage. Here's the first that I see, and I'm just going to use single words to describe what I discover. The first is boldness. Look at your passage now. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. What's this uh, transition of time? He's coming out from somewhere. Well, you know, you've been with us over these weeks. He is coming out of the, the evening of 
the Last Supper, and he's coming out of the upper room. He'd been there for some time that night. A lot had transpired under the purpose of God. He had celebrated the final Passover that he would have with his men until he returns in his kingdom, that is. And he instituted something new, the Lord's Supper, which we know is the communion service as a memorial to what he was about to do on that great cross. So all of that had transpired. And of course, in the midst of that, the betrayal of Judas had landed with shock upon the disciples. And Christ had revealed him and Judas had left to do his betraying work. Even then, he was meeting with the high priests and organizing the arresting party. As the night went on after that, Jesus went to a prolonged time of teaching. You don't see it in Luke, but you see it in John chapters 13 through 16, in which he prepared his disciples for the, the great experience and risks that were coming after he ascended and they were on their own in the world, bearing his gospel to a hostile hostile world. And he taught them about the person of the Holy Spirit and the comfort of God and what persecution will taste like and what his presence will be like in the midst of it and on and on. And then finally, having taught them well, he prays for them in John 17 in the great high priestly prayer there at the table. They're still mystified, but he's praying in greatness over them as a pastor over his flock and he prays over them and then when that prayer is finally done they conclude their Passover night they'd been worshiping that entire evening and they sang the last of the psalms of what was known as the Hallel the group of psalms that every Jew Jewish gathering sang for Passover night and then they left that upper room and wound through the eastern part of the city I believe down through the streets late at night perhaps after midnight and then down through the terraced fields outside Jerusalem, and they went right to the Mount of Olives. This is what the text means when it says he came out and went, as was his custom, right to the Mount of Olives. What was the Mount of Olives? It's really not a mountain. It's kind of a ridge to the east of Jerusalem. And it's about three to 400, 300 to 400 feet higher than the city proper. It's a great place to go, even today, to, to gaze down on the, the holy city and to see the temple at that time gleaming in the daytime and quiet at night. And Jesus had been spending his nights there on the Mount of Olives with his men in the, in the air of the spring, just sleeping there overnight. And so it was it was their place. It was the place that they went to often. And that's why the text says he went as, as his custom. Now, that's important because as we see this first discovery, his boldness, that phrase means a lot because Jesus knew, of course, that Judas had hatched his plot and he was meeting with an arresting party. And Judas had been with Jesus throughout and knew that it was the custom of Jesus to go to that place on the Mount of Olives and so Jesus goes exactly where Judas expected him to go. What does that tell us? The boldness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing he'll be betrayed, knowing that that's the first step to the cross, knowing that it was all in play, he goes. He went as his custom was because his hour had come, the scripture tells us, and he, he went into it boldly and bravely. No reason to evade it, but a divine reason to walk right into it. And as he came out from the upper room and down through the streets and then through the terraced gardens, there was one place that separated the Mount of Olives from eastern Jerusalem, and that was known as the Kidron Valley. There was a, a stream that ran through it known as the Kidron. Kidron meant either darkness or dark waters. I find that interesting. I think I mentioned this to you before that archaeologists and students of Israel have said that during the Passover time, the waters of the brook Kidron would become darkened by blood. Because during the Passover, that very week, that very day, and the Thursday and Friday, both days in the afternoons, the Jewish people who would come for Passover would bring a lamb for each household and those lambs would be slain, their throats would be cut, their blood spilled at the foot of the altar. As many as two and a half million Jews were journeyed to Jerusalem that week for Passover. That would mean that over 250,000 lambs would be slain in the temple in those two days, Thursday and Friday. 
Now the blood of those lambs was poured on the altar as a crimson offering to God. And then from the altar, that blood, gallons and gallons and gallons of it, would flow into a channel dug that was, that was built into the bottom of the altar. And that channel would lead down beneath the temple, down to, through, a, through a, a conduit that would lead down to the brook Kidron. And the blood from the altar would eventually drain through that channel right into the brook Kidron. And during the season of Passover, the brook Kidron, a sacrifice after sacrifice was made would run red with the blood of the lambs of Passover. It must have been already darkening that evening because the lambs had already begun to be slain and it would soon be solid red as the Passover progressed and it strikes me that the Lord Jesus Christ goes to meet his betrayer and he steps over or walks through the brook Kidron and the blood-red waters course over his feet. He knew where he was going. And he went in boldness. He knew where he was going, and he knew why he was going there for your salvation, your redemption. But on the way to Calvary, his greatest spiritual battle, I believe, would be waged in Gethsemane itself, And that's where he's headed. Boldness. Here's the second thing I see. Dependence. The text says he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And look at verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there was a place near the Mount of Olives. The place Luke hardly needed to describe it. What was that? It was a garden there called Gethsemane. It was the place that they were very familiar with because they headed there often because that's where the master loved to pray. It was really his place. It was so familiar to him. It had been the place where night after night in his ministry, particularly in the last weeks in Jerusalem, as the hatred rose, that he would go and he would be with his father and be strengthened for the battles that rose and the cross that was coming. And he met his father there. But this night, someone else would meet him too, his spiritual enemy. He proceeded as was his custom, and then they came to that very place. It was a place where there was going to be a great battle waged. One author has said the the place was a place like a crucible, a, a place of crushing. It's interesting that Gethsemane, the word meant olive press. It was a place where the the olives were taken from the olive groves that surrounded it and they were dropped down into a a stone with a a kind of an impression in it and then a, a larger millstone was rolled and rolled and rolled over those olives so that the 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 oil would be pressed out from the grinding pressure and and just drain out into a container i find it fascinating that jesus in this great battle went to the place of the olive press. And that's rather apropos considering the fact that Jesus would be pressed hard by the enemy with thoughts of the impending crucifixion and the wrath of God that would come upon him and it would be pressed hard by the devil himself. One author said this, the saving interests of a dying world and the eternal honor of his holy name are now to be cast into the crucible. The issues of that night's awful work will affect heaven, earth, and hell and stretch out to the uttermost ages of eternity. So much was at stake. In a garden, the first Adam fell through sin. In a garden, the second Adam would would need to triumph through suffering. And that's what began to be unfolded here. Jesus knew he was going to a familiar place that had always brought encounter and comfort with the Father, but now it would bring mighty struggle. And through prayer, Jesus knew that he would fight that battle. And so he comes to the place and he knows that a great prayer battle is going to be his over the next hours. 
But before he goes to his place, he turns to his disciples and says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. How powerful that on the eve of his greatest struggle, he's still thinking of them. Many authors have pointed out the incredible deathless love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that he had promised them that they would be attacked by the enemy too. That they would flee and abandon him and that Peter, the best of them, would deny him. They were heading into spiritual conflict and they were going to be tempted to deny him and flee from him. And Jesus is urging them to pray against that great attack. What was their, what was their only tool? Pray that you may not enter into temptation Entering in means giving in. It means stepping over the line. It's not a sin to be tempted, as you know. What we do is we step into the call of sin and we commit to it. And prayer is the great pathway, if you will, away from that. I find it interesting. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then what does Jesus go and do? He prays and wins the great battle of his own temptation through prayer. Jesus Christ, in the great hour of spiritual attack, learned to be dependent on the Father. Here's the third. Isolation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. You see the whole scene shift. The mood deepens and becomes more somber. Jesus now moves into his battle. He goes to meet the enemy and the great struggle. He moves away from them. He withdraws from them because you see, this was his battle alone. No human being could understand it, could relate to it, could survive it. Only the God man. And the great issue at play was his saving work. This was his battle alone. And Jesus would say later in chapter 22 and verse 53, all the supernatural forces in the universe were rising that night because he said in chapter 22 of Luke in verse 53, this is your hour, the hour of darkness. And so everything was beginning to escalate and Jesus alone knew it and he moves to it. It was his battle and his enemy. The same way Jesus moved into the wilderness three years before. Do you remember that? When the devil was there to tempt him for 40 days. This battle would be very deep. Mark and Matthew give us their renditions of it and at a certain point as Jesus battled and then went back to see if the disciples were watching and praying for him and finding them asleep each time. He would go three times. At one point, he would tell them, my soul is grieved even to death. And we'll see that sweat like blood fell from him. And Hebrews 5 tells us that the battle was at the point where the perfect God-man was crying out with loud cries and tears. And all of that was undergone alone. It was his battle. For obedience to the Father and your redemption. Boldness, dependence, isolation. And now to the heart of it. Verse 42, the word I would use there is temptation. He knelt down and prayed. Fascinating. The Jewish posture of prayer, as this one pointed out, was mostly standing with arms raised. Oh, the spiritual pressure was so much on Jesus that he knelt before the Father. And finally, Mark tells us that he was prostrate on the ground. The battle commenced. And the nature of the battle was such that Jesus prayed to the Father in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was the battle? It was the battle over the cup. The cup that was coming at the cross. Here, 
is where whatever skill I have and whatever maturity I possess falters. I wish I could just read the text and let it speak to you. I can't get to the depths of this. And I tremble at teaching error over it. But my best understanding of it is what I'll give you. The best as I and those that I've read understood it, this was an immense spiritual battle that was waged on two fronts by the enemy. It was waged against the twin natures of Jesus Christ, perfect God, eternal God, and perfect man. The only being with two natures. It was a battle on two fronts. The devil began to assault him with understandings of the human suffering he was going to undergo on Calvary. And in all the hours leading up to it, the humiliations, the torments, the the betrayals, the mocking, the physical suffering, the scourging, the cross-bearing, and all that came with it. And of course, the agonies of crucifixion itself. But then there was another aspect to the cup, and that was the divine wrath he would taste for me. Let me simply read to you what some of the commentators that I respect have have helped me see about the passage. Charles Spurgeon, (laughs) the prince of preachers 150 years ago, said, whenever I preach this passage, I'm never afraid of exaggerating when I speak of what my Lord endured, because that is impossible. All hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior Jesus Christ was made to drink. The cup is, is the place of battle. It's, it's that which he faced. Dr. William Hendrickson talks about how this may have played out, he said, quote, though it will never be possible for our minds to penetrate into the mystery of the horror that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane, we cannot be far amiss if we state that it probably included at least this, that he was given a preview of the agonies of the fast approaching crucifixion. This is the human dimension of the spiritual attack. Dr. Henderson is saying that that the very nature of Jesus as a human being, though perfect, would have revulsion against physical suffering, revulsion against all that the human experience of that torment would be filled with. Hendrickson says that he was given a preview of the agonies of the fast approaching crucifixion. And he also had a foretaste of what it would mean to be forsaken by his heavenly father. There's the attack on the divine scale. This holy one, this one who had ever lived to please his father, who could not even contemplate sin, would take it on and become sin for us. The revulsion of that's impossible to describe to the God-man. He goes on. And is it not reasonable to assume that during those dreadful periods of anguish that night, Satan and his demons assaulted Jesus with the intention of causing him to turn aside from the path of obedience to God? You could put it this way. He's saying perhaps the devil was allowed by God the Father to tip the cup and to allow Jesus, the God-man, to see what was coming. Spiritual conflict, unimaginable. R. Kent Hughes, a more recent commentator, in his commentary, said this, we must also realize that Christ's request for another way came from the two things he saw in the cup. First, it was a cup full of sin. He saw all the brutality of a thousand killing fields, all the whoring of earthly civilizations, all the blasphemy, all the profanity, all the moral ugliness of humanity and every point, every person, every place. A cup brimming with jealousy and hatred and covetousness, which he must drink. And Jesus recoiled in his holiness. 
Second, he saw that it was a cup full of wrath. As the sin bearer, he would not only go through the the incredible experience as the perfect God of bearing our sin, but he then would taste the wrath of God the Father for it. He would become the object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 would instruct us. He goes on, the drinking of the cup would also make him a curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So gazing into the cup, Jesus saw a hell open for him, and he staggered. It is no wonder that we see the blood-like sweat and the tears, and that we hear him crying out for deliverance, end of quote. What a massive attack and what deep, deep suffering and revulsion must have consumed the Son of God. He was tempted to recoil as a man from the first, the physical suffering and humiliation and the tasting of death. But he was tempted to be revolted as God at the second of becoming sin and feeling the wrath of God. Now again, I said that there is no way we can place ourselves in this passage because no being in the universe has ever been tempted like this because there was no one and is no one like him. It's been noted that, that like I said, the, the temptation of Christ was different than ours. One commentator put it this way. The temptation the Lord faced was different than that of believers. Christians are new creations, but we're still incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. We still have sin in our flesh that remains, and so we're easily seduced by the remnants of our fallenness. So when Satan tempts us, he tempts us to hold on to our sin, to walk into our sin, the sin that we still possess and not mature. So Christians fight against their attraction to sin. And the battle is to abandon it and embrace righteousness and holiness and purity. But he writes, but Satan's temptation of Christ was just the opposite. Think about this. Christ was perfectly pure and righteous. There was no sin in him. Christ was perfectly pure and righteous, and his absolute holiness motivated his every thought, word, and deed, and had eternally... While believers struggled to abandon sin and embrace holiness, the struggle of Jesus was to set aside his holiness and embrace sin-bearing. You see the distinction? He was not fighting against sinful impulses. He didn't have any. He was not fighting against sinful impulses to allow himself to become holy, but he was fighting, as it were, against holy impulses to allow himself to be made sin for believers. Satan tempts Christians to cling to sin. He tempted Jesus to cling to holiness. So the battle was on, was on for the perfect and righteous Son of God to move into this alien experience and this revolting place. I put it this way, our battle is to fight against our innate attraction to sin, to fight against our fallenness, and to abandon it, but that's not Christ's struggle. He struggled with the temptation in exactly the opposite way because the power of holiness was the only motive he'd ever known in his eternal experience. He was the Holy One, and he loved holiness, and he loved to please his Father. So Satan is tempting him to cling to that, and perhaps dark thoughts were flung at Jesus in the garden. Just go back to your throne room. You don't really need to do this, and for you to do this would cause you the revulsion of everything that is dear to you. Just go back to your throne room, Satan might have uttered. Don't go forward to this cross for these. You don't have to taste this darkness. You don't have to taste the sin. 
You don't have to be forsaken by the Father. We don't know. In the midst of this, Jesus more than once, according to the other Gospels, said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This cup was the place of battle. People look at that and say Jesus was resisting. No, he wasn't resisting. He was asking. He was dialoguing with his father once again about the eternal possibilities of redeeming you in some other way. And of course, he was the way. And in the end, there was no other way because there is no other lamb. Now notice here that he asks, but in the midst of willingness, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here we come to the next thing I see. There is this isolation and this temptation that only he could have undergone. But look at the next submission. Don't miss this. Nevertheless, not my will, but, but yours be done. This was the life of Christ with his father always. <laughs> Jesus was not weakening and contemplating betraying the call of the father. Not a sign of weakness. It was really a sign of holiness. Some have suggested that Christ's prayer to remove this cup was a sign of weakness, but nothing could be further from the truth. It was not a sign of his weakness, but a sign of his holiness. If he was the holy, eternal son of God, you would expect him to revolt at the idea of becoming the bearer of sin, would you not? This demonstrates for all time the perfect purity of who he is. Oh, it's not a sign of weakness, a sign of his holiness reacting to the thought of becoming the bearer of man's sin and God's righteous wrath and judgment against that sin. He was about to take it all. My sin, your sin, in magnitudes magnified by so many he was about to become what Justice Matthew Hale, a Christian jurist in England, said this, Jesus was about to become the greatest offender in world history. Think about that. And he submitted to it. He was ready to go from the holiest place to my place because the Bible said he was crucified in my place. Who pair is the Greek? Romans 5, 8, 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who pair means in the place of. He was ready and going to the place where I deserve to be, where you deserve to be. And he did it all for the Father's glory. Don't you ever tell me that the Lord Jesus Christ wavered on the way to my, my salvation. He was committed to it from before the foundation of the world. He revolted in the depths of what it meant, but he submitted to the Father. Jesus was determined from the beginning to go, but it was battle to get there. Sometimes spiritual determination is battle, but he was committed to me. In John 12, verse 27 a day or two before this, he said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Jesus was in battle even in the days before Gethsemane. At Gethsemane, it was at its height. His soul was troubled. And his human nature, every dimension of his mind and will and emotions were in a tumult and troubled. And the very nature of who he was as God revolted at what must come. But he said, am I to say, save me from this hour? I have come to this hour for God's purpose. And then he said, Father, glorify thy name. That's my Lord Jesus. He submitted 
to the will of God. Look at this wonderful passage, and I'll show you the most precious word in verse 42 of Luke. The most precious word to me is the word, nevertheless. It'll be horrendous. Nevertheless, I want your will. That's the word that won the war. It moved back and forth, the other gospel writers tell us, to three great encounters where it peaked. But I think that's the word that won the war. The battle rose at that point and was won. And now I see God the Father entering with another quality, and that's compassion. Verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus had asked three times now, this was the third, and one sad answer had come. The father said, it must be so. But I think it's beautiful that he sent a comforter. <laughs> he sent someone in the physical space, if you want to use that modern word. An angel appeared from the throne room. An angel appeared to strengthen him. Oh, Jesus Christ was fully man, and the frame of his manhood was quaking. He wasn't sinning, he was suffering. And an angel comes. And their conversation was eternally private, but I've often wondered what could he have told Jesus? To strengthen him to face the cross. I don't think he was strengthening him physically, he was strengthening him in truth and in God's word and God's plan and Here's my best guess, Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and just run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's a passage about endurance. Here's what gives a believer endurance. How do we gain endurance? By verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's Gethsemane in a phrase. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know, beloved, but my godly guessing tells me that perhaps the angel told him, yes, the cup is coming. The suffering will be deep and the wrath you will taste eternal. But don't lose sight of the other side. Know that I'll be adoring you once again in the throne room you left when you have risen and ascended and you return to your place of ultimate honor. Lord Jesus, I declare to you the joy that's coming. What was the joy that was set before him maybe that night that allowed him to endure the cross? Two things. The joy of having obeyed his father and receiving glory for it. And the joy of seeing you at the base of that throne, joining with billions of others saying, holy, holy, holy. Blessed be the lamb that was slain. Worthy art thou. Oh, that was all coming. But there was a cross before it. We hasten farther. Go back to Luke 22 and... Unfortunately, 
there was still some agony to follow, and that's the next word from compassion to agony. Verse 44, it seems to say that even when the angel had come and, and God the Father had given his final word that, Son, we know it must be this way, that the agony seemed to increase. Verse 44, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. He had to pray more deeply now with, with more intention. It, it was The word earnestly there means stretched out before the Father in intensity and, and the word agony there, agony, it's the only time it's used in the Greek New Testament in that form. And it talked about emotional and mental agony. Why did suddenly things increase? Because things were clearly final. And because now the battle was engaged to go to the cross, that the decision had been made to take the cup, and now the rest of the battle is unfolding. And of course, Jesus had to pray in deeper strength because the agony became very real. Once the answer was given, Sometimes knowing it means facing it. And the anguish intensified. Dr. Vincent, the Greek scholar, talked about the word agony here, and he said it's in the aorist participle, which suggests a growing intensity in the struggle. So, so now it's clear, and he, has, he goes through more struggle to prepare himself for what he knows will come. So everything escalates and intensifies and it intensifies to the point where the scripture here says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Just incredible, of course. He was under such emotional tension that he experienced something that the medical authorities call hematidrosis. It's a rare medical condition where your sweat will contain blood because your sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels which can dilate to the point of rupture and so the blood mixes with the sweat and it is caused by conditions of extreme physical or emotional distress Mental anxiety, this expert writes, activates the sympathetic nervous system to invoke the stress, the fight-or-flight response to such a degree as to cause hemorrhage of the vessels supplying the sweat glands. Medical research notes that it's been observed in people awaiting execution or in soldiers before battle. Oh, his body expressed the battle of his soul. And he prayed through it. He would say that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Hebrews, as I said, says that in this particular moment, perhaps the loud cries and tears that the disciples dimly heard a hundred feet away happened. We don't know. I don't know how long that went, but I know for whom it was gone through, for you and for me because he had accepted our cup. Eventually, the intensity subsides and we come to the final word, victory. Victory. Because verse 45 tells us, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, the answer had been given. The battle had been won. And now he rose. I want to take you to how Mark described it in Mark 14, verses 41 to 42. I love this added detail. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you sense courage and resolve in that sentence? Of course. He's gone through the conflict He's battled to the point of finish, and now he's going in victory. The disciples had failed in their vigil and failed to prevent their own betrayal and abandoning that would happen in short order. But Jesus Christ had won the greatest supernatural conflict in history. And Dr. Godet was right. At Gethsemane, Jesus did not drink the cup. He consented to drink it 
The real battle was fought there, he writes, and won. Well, but it's just as well I've felt uncomfortable even gazing into such a hushed and holy event and trying to tell you something about it. I doubt I've done it much justice. But as we prepare our hearts for our communion service, let me risk giving you one more word just between you and I. It would be the word remembrance. It's interesting that all three of the synoptic gospels record the Gethsemane in detail. Perhaps from the memory of the three disciples and what they heard Jesus go through and even pray to the Father from a stone's throw away that night. They never forgot the tears and the battle or the words that Jesus brought them as he came out of the garden. Rise, let us go. My betrayer has come. They knew his battle was fought for them and for us, and we ought to remember it. And communion is something that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so I want you to prepare your heart, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, to let this communion be a communion of honor, of remembrance. Gethsemane strikes the heart of the real believer. <laughs> I close with uh, words of uh, a writer named Charles Gabriel. He was a hymn writer, and uh, he was going through the Gethsemane story and was so struck by it that he built a famous hymn around it. It's been repopularized by Chris Tomlin and it's one of his national tours, but curiously, Tomlin leaves out the part that was most important to Charles Gabriel. Gabriel wrote, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. For me it was in the garden, he prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. In pity angels beheld him and came from the world of light, to strengthen him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me.